Welcome to the Ashram Podcast, made possible by the American Society for Healthcare Risk Management to support efforts to advance safe and trusted healthcare through enterprise risk management. You can visit ashram, that's A-S-H-R-M dot org slash membership to learn more and to become an Ashram member. I'm Bill Klaproth. So when it comes to telehealth, what does the risk manager need to know to minimize risk? Well, let's find out with Dr. Jennifer Kozali. Her main responsibilities include the coordination and oversight of quality improvement and risk management activities according to the accreditation standards, JCI and Department of Health in Abu Dhabi, and Judy Klein. She is a BD lead, a PA and risk manager, and also she is in risk management and analytics for Covaris. Jennifer and Judy, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Jennifer, let me start with you. How do we measure the success of the telehealth program? So like any program or project that we want to implement in the healthcare settings, it is important to measure the success and the performance of the telehealth program in order to secure its future and to determine the next steps on a clinical aspect, whether we want to scale the program to expand benefits to more patients, conditions, specialties, or on a financial aspect to justify the continued costs and fundings implicated with the program. So now how do we measure the success of the program? First, every organization has to set its own enterprise objectives and goals that they want to achieve through the telehealth program, both short-term and long-term, and then accordingly develop an evaluation and routine performance monitoring plan that includes the key performance indicators or KPIs with defined targets. There is definitely no one-size-fits-all approach to telehealth when it comes to KPIs, like any other area of patient care. And the choice of KPIs depend on the goals and objectives set and types of services provided. However, there are some standard KPIs that can be used to measure success, and these indicators cover the different organizational domains, such as operational, clinical outcomes, patient safety, human capital, financial, technology, strategic reputation, and legal. Now I'm going to go over some examples of those KPIs under each domain. Let's start with the clinical outcome indicators. For example, we want to have improved health outcomes, and the targets are specific to each disease that we are treating. We want to have improvement in the compliance with treatment as a result of access, convenience, and continuity of care through telemedicine. We want to have reduction in ER visits and readmission rates. As for the operational outcomes, you want to have improved access to care and specialists. And this is very helpful when you talk about behavioral health, psychiatry, dermatology, telesitter, whenever you want multiple patients to monitor against falls, suicide risk. And that helps a lot with the nursing shortage that we have. Under the financial indicators, you want to have improved patient reach. And we measure that by increased number of patients enrolled in the telehealth. We want to have reduced cost, cost per case, cost due to readmission penalties. Under strategic reputational, we focus on the patient experience. Under strategic reputation, we focus on patient experience perspective. We want to have improvement in patient satisfaction. And you can measure that through the patient experience surveys that we're going to be tailoring based on the telemedicine services that we are providing. Under human capital domain, we have to improve the provider satisfaction indicators. And this is provided due to continuity of care and efficiency of care delivery due to telemedicine. And under technology, we want to make sure we don't have complaints due to lack of connectivity, Wi-Fi, and even the telemedicine monitors that we are using to monitor the blood pressure and the vital signs. 
So then what are the strategies that providers and healthcare organizations can take to optimize the use of telehealth to deliver safe and effective care to patients? So there are some strategies that providers and healthcare organizations can take into account to optimize the use of telehealth in order to deliver a safe and effective care to patients. First, as discussed earlier in my previous question, we need to make sure that we set up the telehealth system for success by setting goals and establishing key performance indicators. And to use the data from those indicators and other feedback on telehealth experience to continuously monitor and make improvements. Second, we need to make sure that we are effectively using the clinical services via telehealth. And we do that by developing protocols and workflows for virtual care and reducing the variation between specialties and service lines by training providers to provide a standardized, high-quality care experience for patients. The third strategy that we can use is to have to ensure appropriate training of staff on telehealth workflows. This is done by creating a series of live educational support and online education modules, and also to identify a staff super user who can provide support and training to the other remaining staff and healthcare providers. These trainings have to cover topics such as equipment technology training, the use of EMR, informed consent, ethics, using telemedicine, privacy, as well as we need to make sure that we are training our patients on how to use telemedicine. Last but not least, we need to make sure that we are continuously monitoring the technology we are using. We have to make sure that we ask our vendors for ways they can provide support pre- and post-implementation. For example, the training that they support, the tech support, the workflow design collaboration, data analysis, cybersecurity, and project management as well. And you also need to make sure that the vendor can provide easy access to data so we can use it for monitoring purposes as discussed using the KPIs. And also we need to make sure that we are ensuring that our organization has a secure platform that supports HIPAA concerns. And we need to all the time monitor this as well when it comes to our telemedicine. Well, thank you for that, Jennifer. And Judy, can you articulate a few of the main benefits of telehealth? Sure, Bill. A couple of words come to mind when looking at the benefits of telehealth. Convenient, efficient, and access. For those who have access to technology and are comfortable using it, telemedicine really provides an extremely convenient and efficient way to deliver health care. Think about it. Patients no longer have to drive to a doctor's office. They no longer have potentially long wait times or be exposed to potentially sick patients in a waiting room. And it significantly benefits patients who otherwise might not be motivated to want to go into an office to see a health care provider. Consumerism or meeting the demands and expectations of you and I as customers is really driving demand for this convenient way to get care. We live by our, you know, our smartphones, our digital devices, and that includes patients of all ages. So one example that comes to mind is, you know, I think of my father-in-law. It's been very beneficial for him because as he gets up in years, he's had difficulty ambulating and hearing too. And so he can use the technology in his own home, by his own computer, and even adjust the volume to be able to hear better to meet his needs. And then his adult children who, you know, ordinarily would not be able to accompany him for 
an in-person visit can remotely call into that visit too. And it also helps the providers. They can get a better understanding of that patient's home environment. Access also comes to mind. Telehealth can improve access to specialists and address provider shortages, especially in regions of the country who are lacking you know, specialists or care providers. And then I think also when you pair a virtual care with remote patient monitoring or wearable devices, following patients virtually can be used as a means to better engage your patients, drive down hospital readmissions, drive down cost, and ultimately improve patient outcomes. It can be a real game changer for patients who are stable but need monitoring of chronic conditions like diabetes, heart disease, to make sure that they're following their treatment plan, you know, they're taking their medications. So consider a type 2 diabetic patient with uncontrolled blood sugars who's been prescribed a continuous glucose monitoring or CGM wearable device with data inputs that remotely get relayed, you know, to the physician. The patient can now easily track their blood glucose adjust their diet, their activity accordingly, and prevent wide variation. So this really helps incentivize patients, makes them more accountable, and it can also lead to reducing the number of in-person visits that that patient has to have. Right. There certainly are a lot of benefits. And what you listed, convenience, that's huge. Improved access and being able to follow patients virtually are all really big benefits of telehealth. But Judy, then what are the challenges when a patient is not in the same room as the provider and what can be done to address those challenges? That's a really good point and great question, Bill. You know, although telemedicine does have benefits, it does have limitations. So some types of visits just are not going to work virtually. So put simply, the issues come down to connection and conditions being assessed. So some visits require that hands-on approach. For example, certain presentations like chest pain, shortness of breath, confusion, blood in the stool, a broken bone, require that patient to be seen in person due to the need to conduct an exam or listen to a patient's labored breathing. And patients may not have the equipment needed for the provider to be able to listen to that patient remotely. It might not be readily apparent as to what those conditions are based on the patient's presenting complaint. So it cannot change the way some care must be delivered, and it can lead to providers missing physical and even non-physical issues that are more readily identified in person. So a subtle wheeze while the patient's breathing in the exam room or a slight hand tremor, an unsteady gait while the patients entering the exam room, these signs and symptoms can be easier for a practitioner to miss during a virtual visit. And missing that critical information may result in an adverse outcome for patients that can ultimately lead to a lawsuit or a claim, such as, you know, a misdiagnosis, an incorrect diagnosis, or an inadequate assessment or testing procedures. And then there are some things like drawing blood or x-rays where the patient needs to be, you know, face-to-face or come in in person. And then I think another huge challenge is can be connection. So some visits require a social connection. For example, if your patient's new to your practice, seeing that patient in person helps establish rapport 
We also need to consider the technical connection. So not everyone is tech savvy and is comfortable using technology. Not everyone has strong, reliable internet connection or access to a computer. And without all of those things, you know, the virtual visit is really a non-starter. There are language barriers that can impact connecting with patients virtually too. So offering language interpreter services is just as important in a virtual visit as an in-person visit. And one of the ways that that can be done is to enable VRI or video remote interpreting through a telemedicine platform that allows access to medically qualified interpreters that are specially trained to be able to be remote interpreters. Right. Yeah, that all makes sense. So, Judy, if I can put you on the spot here, can you share with us five things that providers and risk managers should know to best care for patients who are not physically in front of a provider? Sure. So five things that I think are really key for providers and risk managers to best care for patients who aren't physically in front of you would be documenting clearly and concisely, just like you would in an in-person visit. Having that documentation in your electronic medical record and portal, including all details of the visit, a working diagnosis based on your clinical assessment, history, physical exam, documenting any patient education or instructions provided, your diagnostic conclusions, your treatment plan, any lab or test results reviewed and discussed, and what the next steps are and follow-up for that patient. Because we often see that, we've been seeing that in some of the claims at our company where that follow-up piece is missing in virtual visits. And then I think a second key takeaway is don't leave understanding to chance. So a good way to do that is implementing teach-back strategies, so where the patient relays the information you shared back to you so that you assure they understand and recognizing language barriers and always leaving an encounter by asking the patient, is there anything else they would like to know or is there anything that they don't understand? Because without that level of communication, providers can miss that you know a patient might not be understanding because perhaps they have some personal circumstance or situation going on that is going to impede their ability to adhere to their care plan or treatment plan that you need them to. And then I think another key point is follow-up. I mentioned we're seeing that in some of our claims lacking. So adopting a system for following up with patients to ensure that they don't have additional questions and the care plan is proceeding as you intend as the provider and ensuring that electronic communications are sent through encrypted applications and documented in the medical record. Next, I think it's important to ask yourself, you know, is telehealth right for this patient? Because not all patients are appropriate candidates for virtual visits or remote patient monitoring. So you really need to start by identifying those conditions that you can monitor remotely. Some common conditions include minor issues where a physical exam is not necessary, reviewing tests, labs, or imaging results, Counseling services work really well, specialist referrals, medication questions, adjustments, or refills, discussing a treatment plan, and chronic disease management is working really well in the virtual care environment. 
And then ensuring that your patients have the right technology. I talked about a strong internet connection. It's essential to engage in a virtual visit. And if organizations or providers are using remote patient monitoring for patients, ensuring that those patients know how to use that, how to maintain it, how to troubleshoot their device, when and where to transmit the data, and how and when the healthcare team is going to look at it, manage alerts, or monitoring thresholds for clinical interventions, and then being sure to obtain informed consent for virtual care visits using the technology and thoroughly documenting that in the medical record. And then I think another key takeaway is to ask, is telehealth right for your practice? Do you have the infrastructure in place to support it to ensure secure and reliable data transmissions? For example, if you're remotely managing patients with congestive heart failure, your infrastructure will need to support connection with things like wireless scales and blood pressure cuffs, and your staff will need to monitor and respond to that incoming data or to alerts. And then lastly, privacy and security risks. Providers also need to take steps to safeguard patient information, ensuring that they're complying with FDA guidelines, for example, if they're using remote patient monitoring, and properly encrypting data transmissions to abide by HIPAA or the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. Thank you, uh, Judy. That was uh, really informative. So let me wrap up by each asking you the same question. And Jennifer, let me start with you. So what key risk management best practices and considerations need to be addressed before implementing a telemedicine program and what lessons or takeaways have we learned from rolling out a telemedicine program during the pandemic? So basically, we need to make sure that we have a plan before implementing the telemedicine. We have a well-detailed plan with checklists that go over what to do and what are the best things to manage technology and what are the gaps that we have in our organization and how to make sure that we are covering those gaps before implementing the telemedicine program. We have to also make sure that we have a proactive risk assessment done before implementation of the program. And that proactive risk assessment has to be covering all the domains of the enterprise risk management to make sure that we're tackling all the gaps and all the risks before ensuring that we're implementing the program before having the program in place. So from that perspective, we need to have the risk assessment being done, and we need to also have a solid program plan checklist before implementing the program. Right. And then, Judy, same uh, question for you. What key risk management best practices and considerations need to be addressed, and what are the lessons or takeaways from starting telemedicine in the middle of a pandemic? Jennifer raised some really great points. From where I sit working for a malpractice insurance company, we get a lot of calls. And I think some of the things to think about are making sure one understands state laws and licensure requirements because the patient might not be in the same state as the provider offering or conducting you know, that virtual visit. So that means that licensure requirements of multiple states may be relevant. And in addition to state licensure requirements, practitioners must also comply with applicable state and federal laws regarding telemedicine. So it's really important to consult with legal counsel because state and federal telemedicine laws and licensing requirements really do vary. 
and they continue to evolve. And many of the special exceptions made during the pandemic through waivers are now expiring. I also think it's really, really important to connect to Jennifer's point to be prepared by training staff. Telemedicine isn't just this occasional camera visit with a patient. It really means training staff in new workflows, roles and responsibilities, using the technology, troubleshooting, and knowing how to conduct yourself during a camera visit. It's a lot different than an in-person visit. And then also educating patients and preparing them ahead of time too. It's really key before that first visit, whether that's done by a staff member contacting that patient before the visit or the practice using a video or other platform to educate that patient, preparing that patient in advance allows the provider then to focus on the clinical conversation, the history, the physical, so that they're not distracted by performing technology-related functions. And then I also think it's important to keep in mind, and what we've learned, is virtual visits do have limitations. So see patients in person when you need to. If you need to have them come in to get a complete picture of that condition to make a diagnosis, make sure you see that patient in person because nothing can replace laying your hands on the patient. So having a process and plan in place for when and how to escalate a virtual visit to a face-to-face visit is key. And then documenting and informed consent, just as important as in an in-person visit, you know, documenting all verbal, audiovisual, written communication in that patient's record and making sure that you know, you're meeting the medical and legal standards of care. Verbal and written informed consent to disclose information about the telemedicine system, potential risks and benefits of telemedicine, equipment and technology limitations, and both the providers and the patient's responsibilities as part of that virtual visit. Many states do require providers to obtain informed consent from patients before that virtual visit begins. So providers should consult with an attorney to assure any state-specific informed consent requirements, and then also assessing whether documentation of virtual visits and informed consent integrates with your electronic health record to make sure that all those pieces and parts that are part of the virtual visit, perhaps you know a photograph that the patient sends to you in addition to the clinical medical record, they all get filtered to the same place, that is that patient's medical record. And then lastly, but very importantly, in virtual care visits is privacy and security. Since telemedicine uses technology, It can make organizations and providers vulnerable to malware attacks and hacks. So keeping that private healthcare information protected is paramount. Security management must incorporate things like firewalls to ensure privacy protections are in place. And providers and organizations need to adhere to state and federal privacy laws and evaluate their cybersecurity risk. And that might mean needing to consult with an outside expert or professional as necessary. Yeah, there's a lot there. You both have provided us with a wealth of information. Thank you for all of this great information that you shared with us uh, today. We really appreciate this. Jennifer and Judy, thank you again for your time. Thank you, Bill. Thanks, Bill. 
And once again, that's Jennifer Kozali and Judy Klein. And to join as a member of Ashram, go to ashram.org slash membership. And the Ashram podcast was made possible by the American Society for Healthcare Risk Management to support efforts to advance safe and trusted healthcare through enterprise risk management. You can visit ashram.org slash membership to learn more and to become an Ashram member. And if you found this podcast helpful, please share it on your social channels and check out the full podcast library for topics of interest to you. I'm Bill Klaproth. Thanks for listening.